Welcome to The Kingstonian, a podcast that profiles individuals who are passionate about what they do for a living, about what organization they belong to, or simply passionate about the community they are a part of. Hello there and welcome. My name is Dave Cunningham. The late Alfred Bader was one of those benefactors whose donations over the years have helped transform Queen's University, but many of you may not know his story. To help us with that, I've invited the principal of Queen's, Daniel Wolf, to be our guest. Daniel, welcome to the program. Great to be back. We are here to talk about the late Alfred Bader and the influence that he had on the university as well as in the community indirectly. But before I get into that, uh, you are on your countdown to the finishing up of your term as principal of the university. And I know that you've got all kinds of fun things planned once your term is up, but before you head off, I just want to extend my appreciation on behalf of our listeners to the job that you've done as principal over the last 10 years. I appreciate that. It's been great fun. It's a great honor to serve as leader of my own honor. I'm very much looking forward to what's going to be achieved for the university under my Mm -hmm. successor. And you'll have... Lots of fun times over the next couple of years as you're taking a leave. That's right. I got two years of administrative leave that I've accrued and uh, time to catch my breath and uh, get back to being a full-time history professor, uh, at least for the research part. And then in two years' time, I'll be back in the Department of History, which was where I started out as an undergraduate uh, 40-odd years ago. So uh, lots to look forward to. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about... Alfred Bader. This is uh, an individual who I've heard about, and he has uh, quite a reputation around campus, but I think there are a lot of people in the community at large who may not know too much about him. So let's talk a little bit about his story and how he came to first be associated with Queens. Sure. Well, it's a fascinating story, and because Alfred has never actually lived in Kingston apart from his time here, as a student in the 1940s, um, it's not surprising that Kingstonians uh, wouldn't necessarily know who he was or or the background, but it is a fascinating story. Um, And it began with him growing up uh, as a Jew in Austria in the mid to late 1930s. Uh, just at the point of the Anschluss with Nazi Germany, his family, which actually was an aunt who was raising him, not his biological mother, um, decided to put him on the kinder transport out of uh, the, the New Reich to Britain. So there he went. He was put up by a Mrs. Wolf, different spelling from mine. No relationship. Uh, no relation at all, though it wouldn't surprise me if uh, her family and my family were, were acquainted since it was pretty much the same part of London that my grandparents uh, were, were living and uh, that my father grew up in. However, uh, war came and uh, enemy aliens and Alfred as a refugee from the Reich was somewhat perversely deemed to be an enemy alien Mm -hmm. and was uh, arrested and deported to what really amounts to being a concentration camp for POWs and political undesirables in Quebec. How old would he have been at that point? Alfred at that point, let's see, uh, was... would teenager? Have been teenager would have been maybe 16, 17, so mm-hmm. 1939, yeah, 
about that. So he spent, um, I think, around about a year there, maybe a little less, and then eventually it was decided, well, look, this teenager who, by the way, happens to be Jewish and a refugee from the Reich, doesn't exactly look like a, uh, a, a threat to uh, our security. So they released him. He went and stayed with relatives of the lady who had taken him in in London, and it was suggested that at that point he actually ought to get a career and get a degree. So as the story goes, he went off to McGill and was told that they had their, had in fact had their quota of Jews for the year. Uh, there were issues pretty much around the country, um, including Queens, I'm sorry to say, uh, in terms of the uh, numbers of Jews that should be admitted to any university. And Miguel told him a flat no. Toronto, I think it was the same story, although there I think it was a little more that it was now sort of late October and the term was already underway. So he then went off to this little place halfway between Toronto and Montreal called Kingston and apparently showed up at the doorstep of the then highly powerful and influential registrar, Jean Royce. Now, Queens in those days was probably under 3,000 students. Miss Royce knew pretty much everybody. Every single and she one. Was, and she was the gatekeeper uh, at that point, and she interviewed young Alfred and essentially said, we now have, uh, we can put you into our engineering chemistry program. So he did his degree, thrived academically, um, did uh, I think did a, a master's degree here before he went off to Harvard and did a PhD, and then he uh, went off and started his own business. So he goes to Harvard, get his PhD in chemical engineering or uh, chemistry. Chem- chemistry. I think it was okay. more basic chemistry by that point, but uh, yeah. And then he starts a business. Yeah, he decides to settle in Milwaukee. And he was just sort of randomly picking a place to live. And he starts a business manufacturing research strength chemicals for businesses, universities, research labs, and so forth. And it seems that that was a, you know, a, a niche that needed to be filled. He called it Aldrich Chemicals. He had a business partner, and apparently they flipped for who got to name it, and the <laughs> partner got to name it, and I forget what, what Aldrich was. But uh, it, they became very, very successful. They eventually merged with a larger company, Sigma, um, and he made his first fortune that way. Then um, he had a, there was a bit of a power struggle on the board, and he got, as sometimes happens, and I can't remember if this was before or after or during the Sigma merge, he got uh, essentially pushed out uh, of the firm. So, you know, cashed out, big, you know, big deal in terms of uh, payout because he'd essentially built the firm. Mm-hmm. But uh, not one to rest on his laurels, he then basically set about a second career as an art connoisseur, art buyer, and art uh, art vendor with his own collection, which was large but very, very selective, but also as a dealer in art for uh, for other other people. So, And that became virtually a second career in which he was uh, just as successful. <laughs> where did this art career begin? Do you have a sense of that? Um, I don't actually know where it began, but, I mean, of course, you know, growing up in, you know, 1930s Austria, which is, you know, of course, uh, 
the interwar period during in Austria and Germany, there was a lot going on 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 the score of of art, uh, particularly with you know modern modernist art, uh, Kandinsky, Paul Klee, and so forth. Alfred's own taste very much veered towards what I would call the early modern period, which is actually interestingly enough my my period as a as a historian. So we actually had a lot to talk about. He had a particular interest in Northern European um, Baroque Renaissance and Baroque art particularly late 16th, 17th century, uh, and also to some degree southern uh, Southern Baroque art, uh, Italian, uh, and so forth. And when that actually turned from a mild interest into a full-scale, all-consuming passion and second career, basically, I'm not quite, uh, I'm mm-hmm. not quite sure. Now, when did he... Um reconnect with Queens after he had made his fortune in the chemical business? Well, there's a story about, and I, I wasn't able to fact check this, but I've, I've heard it several times, that he was one of those famous donors that gave a very, very small gift the first time out, $8 or $10, which, <laughs> you, know, you know, of course, you know, 50 years ago would have been more than it is now. Mm-hmm. But it does illustrate the importance of getting people into the giving habit, even if it's a small amount early early on because, because it grows. But I don't think he'd ever forgotten how well he'd been treated at Queen's. And and I have to say, um, given everything that he and uh, Isabel and the family have done for the university, even just during the 10 years I've been principal, <laughs> I give daily thanks for <laughs> the wise decision of Gene Royce uh, to have, uh, to to let have him admitted in. him. To me, to me, it's like the brilliant judgment of the 157th publisher that said uh, to J.K. Rowling, you know, boy wizard, yeah, I might be able to do something with that. But, yeah. Okay, so we know that at some particular point, so the story goes, that Alfred Bader started contributing a little bit early on back to Queens after he had gone off and started his first business. Now, in recent years, he has uh, contributed an awful lot to the university. Can you go through some of the things that he has been responsible for? Oh, sure. I mean, the the list is extraordinary. And let me let me just begin with just the things that he and he and Isabel and the family foundation that they've set up have done during my 10 years as principal. First of all, uh, the Isabel Bader Performing Arts Center project was conceived by my, one of my predecessors, Karen Hitchcock, with uh, with uh, Dr. Bader, but um, it didn't really, I think, get fully off the ground till um, after I got here. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you one thing. We found very, very quickly that uh, we didn't have enough money to do the full thing the way it had been conceived. And um, Alfred, being a very, very parsimonious man, very, very careful with his money. I mean, he would always send checks with uh, in plain brown envelopes by regular post with, you know, three-cent stamps and so forth. Never use a courier. <laughs> Um, uh, we weren't sure how he was going to take this, and we went to him with a proposal for you know, essentially descoping the project a little bit to bring. This was, you know, this was in the wake of, um, I would say, a period when perhaps uh, 
uh, capital construction had exceeded uh, funds available, uh, for example, the Queen Center uh, before I arrived. And you know, obviously our board was being very, very careful about what it would what it would actually approve as a building project. So I went to Alfred and, um, you, know, without, you know, he obviously wanted to know, you know, what, you know, what, we were going to get and what he was going to get for an extra donation, but he uh, he provided it, and thus the building got going, and we were able to build the fantastic facility that it is. Um, he would Alfred would, on the spur of the moment, decide that he hadn't done something to honor someone. So, for instance, one day I I learned that he had. Uh, apparently woken up in the middle of the night and realized that he had not done something to honor the memory of Principal Robert Wallace, who had been the principal when he was here as a student. So right away, he wrote a check for, I forget what the amount was, to establish a set of international bursaries or scholarships for international refugee students. Again, a very typical Alfred move. Mm-hmm showed up one time, decided he wanted to do something to help me out, uh, my role as principal, and, uh, you know, I suggested a bunch of things, one or two of which he, you know, just wasn't interested in, uh, which was fair enough. Um, But then we hit on the idea of, uh, you know, a million dollars to the humanities, which tends tends sometimes not to get uh, the amount of funding, for example, that is available in the STEM disciplines, particularly from the research councils. So he was, with his sympathies in art and art history, he was quite amenable to that. So we established what was called the Bader Postdoctoral Fellows in Humanities, which ran for a couple of years until the funds were... uh, uh, were, were spent. Um, but again, you go back before my time, and the list goes on and on. We have a number of endowed chairs in chemistry, in art. We have an, an endowed Bader curator for the art collection in the Agnes Etherington. We have that fantastic collection of paintings. I mean, how many universities have Rembrandt's? How many mm-hmm. universities have more Rembrandts than exist elsewhere in the, in the entire country? We have there are there are seven in Canada. We have four of them. Um, not to mention the other art he's donated isn't exactly what I would call uh, <laughs> second raters either. <laughs> so uh, we it's a just fantastic collection and and the funds to support it through through the curator and art conservation and so forth. And then, of course, there's the castle. Uh, Before we go to the castle, one point I I found interesting when I was reading the article on him in Alumni Review is that it seemed like you had not been principal all that long when he called you. Just I guess just to test the waters to see what kind of principal you were going to be. Well, I in fact it was not that I had not been principal that long, so that I wasn't even principal yet. I would oh, okay. say uh, the announcement of my appointment was I think late January of two thousand and nine, and I was still working at the University of Alberta for another five six months. And uh, one day I got an email from Advancement uh, and. Uh, uh, asking if I would take a call from Dr. Bader, and uh, I think this was maybe three weeks to a month, if, after my announcement. I said, you know, absolutely happy to. I'd actually always been curious about uh, who this man was, reading mm-hmm. about him in the pages of the Alumni Review for you know, decades since I graduated. So we took the call. I took the call, and uh, we had a, we had a great chat. 
I think he was most concerned that I wouldn't um, put the art up for for, uh, for sale to you know solve the university's financial challenges. Mm-hmm. It, it's an interesting story. It just shows what kind of concern and interest he had in the university, even from Milwaukee. That's right, and of course, um, you know the, the interest was beyond philanthropy because for he was for some time a member of the board of trustees too. So uh, I think uh, I would say. His his great loves were you know art, chemistry, certainly Isabel and his family, but also Queens. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really took he really although he was a very careful and shrewd businessman, um, he could be impulsive in a in a good way. I mean, I talked about you know deciding he needed to do something in memory of a, a past principal. Well, one day he was out driving in England with Isabel Bader, who was his second wife. And Isabel's family came from Sussex, south of England, and she was familiar with the castle, uh, which has, which dates from the 15th century. And I, I have to say, as a historian, isn't technically really a castle. It's actually a manor house. It only, it only has half a moat. But we'll leave that aside. Picky, picky. We'll leave that aside. But we'll call it the castle. But uh, but it is a, it is a fascinating building at a state with terrific grounds. Anyway, it happened to be for sale because the uh, Royal Observatory was based there and, and actually still is. But I think a large part of it was being decommissioned and uh, so I'm not sure who exactly was selling it. I assume Her Majesty's uh, uh, keepers of the royal grounds or whatever. But uh, it was for sale, and he put in a pitch and bought it. And then apparently the next thing is Principal David Smith, who was the principal at the time, uh, you know, got a call saying uh, that he was being given a castle in England. <laughs> um, that must have been one of the most surprising phone calls from a major donor that any university principal or president has ever received. So what does Queens do with this castle now? So for really the last, uh, we got it in 1991 or 1992, and for the last 25, 26 years, we've run a number of programs there. There has been a first-year program, so students can go there and do their entire first year there before they actually come to the Queen's campus. We have students from partner institutions who will do terms there, typically in the upper year, but I think sometimes first year as well. So it's it's become, I think, kind of our, uh, I call it our Far East campus. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's um, never made money. But the rumors that it's uh, a, a big financial sinkhole, I think, have been greatly exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it took a few years to get on its feet. And, you know, with the rules of accounting, it still has a bit of an accrued debt from those early years. But I think it's had very, very sound management over the last few years. We have a full-time director over there now, uh, Dr. Hugh Horton from the chemistry department, very experienced administrator. He was vice dean and faculty of arts and science for a while. And he's got a very, very good team over there. So it's... uh, it's, I think, doing doing well, and it's you know it's a bit like the art. Why would you sell it for a one time mm-hmm. gain? It doesn't actually cost you that much if you look at the proportion 
you know, expense. And it gives us some distinction and a foothold in, uh, I was going to say, in the European community, but that remains to be, <laughs> that's a different conversation. As altogether. of this recording, we're not sure where that's going. Yeah, exactly. And that was the next point, is that you would think that this would give you that kind of a foothold in that general area and, and help the university or at least get the university's name out there. Yeah, and I think it's helped to a bit. I don't think it's quite reached its potential yet. Um uh, Queens, Queens suffers from a couple of things, one of which is that it's not the only Queens on the planet, whereas there are certain other universities in the country with very distinctive names, uh, with greater name recognition. And uh, When it comes to looking back on the contribution that he has made to this university, can you encapsulate into a brief description as to what kind of impact well, Alfred I, Bader has had on Queens? We, get, we have great support from our alumni, great support from foundations and donors. Uh, we had a very successful campaign. We have a number of other major donors. As we do this recording, I'm heading into a weekend of celebrating uh, Mitchell Hall, which is uh, the product of uh, another very generous donor, Bruce Mitchell and his family. Uh, we've had Stephen Smith and his gift to, uh, to Smith School of Business. These are what I would call transform- transformative-level mm-hmm. donations. Uh, they not only, they not, every, all of it assists from the $10 gift to the $50 million gift. But uh, very few are in the category that you, you, they can literally transform a faculty or a university. Alfred Bader is one of the handful of donors, and I've mentioned a couple of others, whose gifts have been simply transformative of the university. They've permitted Queens to do things that the university couldn't possibly have imagined doing, let alone funding adequately. Um, you know, we would we would not have acquired on our own the art collection, uh, despite the fact that we have an excellent art history department. We ha- would not have been able to build, certainly to the degree it's been a spectacular success, the Isabel Bader Performing Arts Center. We certainly wouldn't have gone on whatever the 1990s equivalent of Kijiji was looking for a castle to <laughs> set up in the UK. So these are, these are gifts that, uh, that genuinely transform the university. But I also don't want to neglect some of the smaller ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, scholarships, bursaries, Alfred, to the very end, had a real sense of what the university had done for him as a refugee, and he always believed very strongly in giving others uh, a chance. I think some of the happiest moments I've seen him in during the last years of his life was when he actually got to meet some of the refugee students that got support uh, from, from him and Isabel. And I think if we bring this all back to the way we opened up the program is that his contributions has done a lot for the university itself and has made Kingston a community that attracts a lot of people because it has a lot of things that small cities its size don't have, and Queens is one of them. I think that's absolutely right. And. That's the end of our program. We've run out of time, and I want to thank you very much for taking the time and helping us find out a little bit more about Alfred Bader. Thanks very much for having me. Our guest on the program today was Daniel Wolf, sharing his memories of the late Alfred Bader. Theme music for the program is Stasis Oasis, a tune written and performed by Kingston musician Tim Aylesworth. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about any of our episodes, please send a note to the Kingstonian Podcast Facebook page. This is Dave Cunningham from Kingston, Ontario. Thank you for listening. Until next time.